Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is November 17th, 2022, and I'm joined today by Commentary Magazine's associate editor, Noah Rothman. Noah is the author of the recent book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. I've always loved that title, and I was excited about this book the moment that I heard Noah was working on it. So, Noah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We very much enjoyed having you in Dallas a few years ago to talk about your last book, and uh, we would like to get you back to Dallas to talk about uh, this book. But uh, instead of waiting till then, we want to talk about it today. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, But before we talk about your book, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, about you. Uh, I am a rabid fan of commentary, in particular the Commentary Podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, and uh, Addie Crimmins in our office, who I think you have met, is also a rabid fan. It's our first listen uh, every day as far as podcasts go. So we we very much enjoy it. And for our listeners, uh, if you're not familiar with the Commentary Magazine podcast, it really cannot be beat uh, for a discussion from a intelligent conservative standpoint on recent politics and every once in a while literature. Uh, and uh, national affairs and international affairs, wonderful listen, uh, tremendous listen. If you have, if you like me, have become a heavy podcast listener, the commentary podcast should be in your mix. So check it out. That's so, very kind. Uh, so I, I tried to for a long time. I tried to stay away from podcasts for a, a rationale that I heard a a, a stand up comic once use that he we're in the same business. So I don't want to accidentally stumble into someone else's thoughts and then launder them as my own totally mm-hmm. inadvertently. So I tried for a long time not to listen to podcasts. And now I kind of do. And on a pretty regular basis, because I do a lot of yard work. So I'm out on the tractor listening to something. Yep. And it, now it tends to be podcasts. And we do ours every day. And a lot of people don't do them every day. And we don't always have a ton of things to talk about. That's what happens when you do them every day. But I'm very frustrated by the lack of podcasts from everybody I want to listen to on a daily basis. You know, it's interesting because I, I do think you guys are unusual in that you do a daily podcast. And I, I cannot imagine doing that. I mean, I, I actually have to write a column once a month for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And when I think about people who write like two columns a week and things like that, I just I don't know how you find enough to write about and I don't know how you find enough to talk about on. And you don't just do a short daily podcast. You do a long one hour plus podcast most days. So an hour plus. Yeah. yeah. And I also write a blog post on a daily basis. I think it probably would be harder if we didn't do it on a daily basis. If I didn't write on a daily basis, for example, there would be so much to say that you wouldn't be able to to narrow down what you want to say. Right. Right. But doing it every day, kind of at least, you know, you have one irritation on a daily basis. That's your post. Well, you had you had. kind. Of, well, yeah, that reminds me, I, I think Jonah Goldberg tells the story when he got his syndicated column that he was asking George Will, how on earth do you come up with an, a good idea every week? And George Will said, just write about whatever made you mad that week. Right. And, <laughs> and, and if you're only mad once a week. Right. Then I don't know what, what business you're in. <laughs> Well, you you actually had kind of a funny thing come up on your podcast this week, which is that, uh, you know, you had you had the the Trump announcement, but you didn't talk about it the next day because you had a topical guest scheduled for the next day. So I imagine I was not your only listener who tuned in the morning after the Trump announcement, hoping to hear you guys 
savaging <laughs> the announcement. Yeah. And we had to wait an extra day, but you still got around to it. Yeah, we got around to it. I mean, there were, there, there were probably no shortage of places where you could get post announcement Trump commentary. So I didn't feel too bad about that one. But yeah, there are also a lot of 30,000 foot perspectives and let's zoom out in the news. And there isn't a ton of punditry. Punditry gets a bad rap these days. There might be a market niche there. There might be more punditry than uh, not as much punditry as the uh, as the appetites for punditry can consume it. Well, there there are definitely podcasts that that I could uh, I would consume more of them if they were available. I, Charlie Cook's podcast, I think, is a is a thing of beauty. And uh, if he did that one every Agreed. day, I would listen every day as well. So, you know, I wanted to chat for a second. You, you know, we're recording, we record our podcast here at IPI in, in a radio studio at Salem Media Group. And I was reminded that you actually had a radio background, didn't you? I did. Um, right. Well, while, while I was in college, actually, um, I went to a small liberal arts school uh, initially on a performing arts scholarship. And while I was a conservative and politically and I was a fan of news talk radio, it wasn't a direction I wanted to go in exactly. And then um, right at the beginning of my sophomore year, 9-11 happened and I was glued to the news like everybody else and spent a lot of time listening in the evenings to a program on 77 WABC in New York, which at the time was hosted by Paul Alexander and John Batchelor. And I enjoyed that show very much and I wanted to get in the door. So I took an internship at sales at WABC, which I was a fan of, wasn't very good at sales, didn't like sales, uh, and ended up walking over to the program director's office, Phil Boyce at the time, legendary guy, and said, can I sit in on this show that I like? And he gave me the opportunity, and I ended up staying there for about four years, uh, helping to produce that show. Um, and when I moved on from that show, and they they moved slots around ended up bouncing around the radio world, but I did news talk radio and, and hot comedy talk and on FM and uh, Sirius XM uh, briefly. But yeah, so I bounced around the radio world and and uh, spent a lot of time producing talk radio shows in New York in a, in a production assistant capacity. And then ended up uh, going back to um, school and getting an advanced degree in international affairs uh, right around 2007. That's when things started to get hinky in New York radio, especially talk radio. Things got, started to get the um, the atmosphere began to chill a little bit and atmospheres uh, or advertisers were getting a little nervous about content. And that's uh, that's that was the end of my New York radio experience. But I did spend about uh, five years in that business. You've also joked about, I think, getting a degree in Soviet studies or Russian studies like <laughs> Like the year before the collapse of the Soviet Union, do I remember that correctly? No, I'm not that old. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> uh, the Soviet Union collapsed um, when I was ten. Oh, okay. So I did, uh, I did not have that right. Okay, but I did have a a, a weird obsession with stemming from a, a, a pretty innate childhood fear of uh, nuclear weaponry that ended up evolving into a study, uh, just a part time in, in my you know in my just free time studying the history of the Soviet Union. And that was a, a background passion besides entertainment and politics and ended up becoming my academic focus in undergrad. I, I graduated with a Russian studies degree um, as my major. And then when I went back to school to get my advanced degree, I, my focus was on security policy in the former Soviet space in Europe and the Caucasus. So it is sort of my academic background stemming from a peripheral interest. Who knew that it would mature to be such a, a useful degree, Russian studies. I mean, a lot of kids these days are graduating with these terrible degrees. I, I really got to give them, you know, 
take some advice and go get a really useful degree like Russian studies. <laughs> That's the sort of thing you can make your bones on today. Well, you know, everything old is new again. It, 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 your, your background and your knowledge of the region and the history comes out when you're talking about these things on the commentary podcast and in your writing. So it, it turns out to be of strategic use to you now. I should hope so. Yeah. It's a, finally a return on investment. <laughs> well, let's talk about your book. Um, Again, the topic of the, the title of the book is The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Uh, and look, this is a wonderful book. It's an exciting book. I devoured it as soon as you sent me a copy, so I appreciate that. Uh, you make an interesting, obs- just sort of general observation that it, it used to be the left that was the don't judge me party. Uh, you know, hippies, free love, free sex, drugs. Uh, li- you know, live and let live, uh, don't judge me, bro, that kind of thing. And now all of a sudden now, just a few decades later, we have this very strange juxtaposition where it's the extreme left, it's the radical left, who in- instead of living out uh, radical freedom and radical liberty, they're the most severe judges, uh, they're the most severe critics on the scene. And uh, your your book is about sort of how that happened and then sort of various forums and venues where that manifests itself. So can you talk a few minutes about just sort of like how that very strange, you know, 180 flip happened on the progressive left? Sure. Uh, I mean, you've this earlier part of this conversation has brought me back to my very young adult uh, early political maturation. And while I was at the time, you know, very uh, a fan of uh, political entertainment and news talk radio in particular, I remember being considering myself more as a Republican than a conservative as a young as a young man, because conservatives at the time in the late 1990s were to me very self-defeating in so far as the the, the myopia of their uh, focus, uh, particularly on American culture blinded them to some rather achievable political victories and indeed robbed them of some political victories. I remember thinking that conservatism had its had had such a narrow focus and was so uh, obsessed with what I perceived to be in in the realm of politics, trivia and minutia, that um, that I I gravitated more towards a political identity as just a, a machine Republican because they actually got stuff done. And that was how I uh, I grew up. That was the world that I inhabited in. The right was could be counted on to see impropriety in seemingly innocent cultural fare. They were obsessed with the tabloid trash you read. It corrupts you. It degrades society. The film and television you watch, the songs you listen to, all of it has this capacity that only they could see to degrade you and corrupt you and and alter society in negative ways. And the left, by contrast, and probably mostly by contrast, emphasized uh, fulfillment um, for its own sake, self-gratification, even at the risk of self-destruction. And as long as the as the right was doing the moralizing, the left could be counted on to be anti-moral, um, not necessarily amoral, but anti-not judgmental, making non-judgmentalism into its own ethos. Um, and that has begun to change in this young decade in ways that are dramatic to the degree that it's almost a, a, a complete reversal of this dynamic. Now you have left wing semi political figures and quasi political figures and then figures in entertainment who are also quasi political themselves emphasizing 
pain, torment, and the capacity that entertainment fair, and in fact, any fair that is cultural and not explicitly political, has the capacity to degrade you and corrupt society. It's very familiar. And we see this in the forms of uh, the way this sort of activism takes. Now, you have entertainment companies like Disney, which are committing themselves to imposing didactic narratives into their media products. So they serve a higher, grander social function than mere entertainment. Comedians who emphasize the pain that somebody had to experience so that you could enjoy something as frivolous as a joke. You can't watch a football game now without being treated to prolonged digressions about the lamentable state of race relations in this country. And when fans object to this sort of thing, as they almost always do, they're explicitly admonished for clinging to their escapism over their duty, their duty as good citizens to dwell on the world's miseries at all times and in all things. And this book asks this question, as you say, why did this happen? How did this transformation happen? And the the thesis that I settle on is that as the left gravitates less towards liberalism, classical or otherwise, and more towards progressivism, they've adopted its habits of mind and its mental gestures. Among them is a hatred of idleness, a fear of that which does not actively contribute to the great work of our time, which is, in their view, the promotion of a progressive social contract. Anything that doesn't do that explicitly and in all, in all forms and in all times actively detracts from the advancement of that project. This is a very puritanical belief. And if you pull on the intellectual threads uh, from which progressivism has arisen, modern progressivism goes back to its to its birth in mainline Protestant New England. It was very much a religious philosophy as much as it was a political philosophy. And from there, you tease a little bit further out and you get to the 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 very short lived in American experience, but has a long half life. Um, the Puritan experience, which uh, has its birth in the very same part of this country, mainline Protestant New England. It shares quite a bit of its philosophical outlooks and uh, the parallels that I try to draw in this book, the the perversion of the virtues, and they are virtues that the progressive left adheres to, um, makes these parallels almost impossible to ignore. It's a decoder ring, I think, to help you understand how this transformation occurred so rapidly and why I don't believe it is going to be a very short lived experience for most of, for a long lived experience for most of us. I think there's a short shelf life to this political, very disruptive political philosophy. Again, we're speaking with Noah Rothman about his recent book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Well, I find the religious angle to this fascinating. I mean, when you, when you use the word Puritans, you are casting a, a religious cast over this topic, and I think you're right to do that. Uh, I, I remember that Michael Schellenberger, in his book on environmental extremism, toward the end of the book, basically dives headfirst and says that for for these radical environmentalists, it has become their religion. It's become a substitute religion, and you know, there's that expression that you know, if people are going to worship something, people are going to have a, a means of achieving transcendence. They're gonna they're gonna have some sense of how they can have meaning and transcendence in life. And if it's not going to be some sort of traditional religion, they'll they'll invent their own new cause, their own religion. And, you know, you, you mentioned the background on this, like the social gospel, for instance. I, I, I guess you see the social gospel as one of the forebears of this as well. When When churches and mainstream denominations started deciding that, you know, shaping society— uh, was the goal rather than just some sort of focus on you know individual salvation and that sort of thing? 
So, yeah, it certainly mimics a secular faith in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things this particular philosophy lacks that I think would render it uh, a faith in anybody's uh, objective uh, observation is a deism, a, a means of absolution. There are no, there is no means of uh, extirpating sin uh, in the same way that any religion mm. has uh, a deism in a Western tradition, not a deism in all the other traditions, but generally a way to absolve yourself of sin. Um, there are indulgences that you can purchase, but you are a uh, terminally flawed creature in the idea of this this particular faith. That's a really uh, it is much really... more. A theor- go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just briefly, to to me, and a lot of the scholarship on Puritanism saw big P Puritanism, the kind that existed in the in the 16th and 17th centuries, or 17th and 18th centuries rather, um, was more than a religion. It was more than congregationalism because congregationalism's boundaries didn't begin or end in the church. It was a theory of social organization that was whole and total. It had all it, it the blur the, the the lines between government and faith and society were all blurred and all indistinct. This was one overarching theory of how to organize society and how all of society's engines can be directed towards the same objective, um, which works in a very homogenized small society that isn't disrupted by the disaggregating force of commerce, which is what the Puritan society was and why it didn't last very long. Um, but that's why I, th- I think it mimics a religion in some important ways. But not in all ways. It is more akin to a theory of how to organize society, uh, akin to um, what we have, what the uh, what the capitalist vision of society was, and in in many ways lacks a competing aspect today. We could we could point to Soviet communism as a competing model. We could point to the ISIS caliphate as a competing model. But generally, there are few competing models of theories of social organization. This is one. It is destined to fail, but it is nevertheless a very dramatic, dramatically divergent theory of social organization, a nascent Americanism that we sloughed off, um, that that bequeathed us the constitutionality and and the sort of um, the pluralism that we have today. But that had to be a re- that was a rejection of Puritan philosophy uh, that that arose from the ashes of the Puritan experiment and was in many ways a result of its failure. Uh, and that's why I foresee failure in this as well. I find your point uh, that there's no redemption or there's no forgiveness in wokeism and the new Puritanism. I find that to be really fascinating because you're right. I mean, if you run afoul, you have to simply be destroyed. Uh, you you know you you are shouted down. You're you have to be fired from your job. You have to be banished from polite society and never heard of again. Uh, there's no way to work your way back into the good graces. Oh, and the punishment for apostasy is far greater than heresy. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's interesting. I, I, I can't help but sort of focus on the quasi-religious part of this, because I personally was raised in a very strict uh, Christian religious background, and it's it, it's a strong kind of legalism where the stricter the rules uh, the more strictly you abide by the rules, the more new rules you can invent for yourself to live by. Uh, you know, the more the more pure your faith, uh, the more the more the more sainted you are, the more the more noble you are. And legalism becomes this endless escalation of you know, almost like Pharisaism. You know, in in the Old Testament, to where they were tithing of their you know cooking spices and salt and all that kind of thing, right. because it's, it's, it's an endless escalation of legalism and rules. And I think that's part, we do see that 
in in wokeism and in the new puritanism because it's like it's almost like anything that happened any new thing that comes along there is inevitably going to be that article in the new york times or the atlantic mm-hmm. or whatever about a fake trend piece yes exactly and you know <laughs> yeah. it, it how how the, the history of this by the way it, you know is actually finds its roots in slavery or the history of this finds its roots in, in sexual discrimination or racial discrimination or something like that and what you find is that Every old thing and every new thing is tainted <laughs> and, you know, in some way. And so this does have the effect of sort of stripping the joy and the fun out of life, doesn't it? It, it is the eternal return, the flat circle of life that we do the same things over and over again. At least you see them coming. So the um, title of the book, and I'm very open about my my um, objective here, which is this is not an attack on Puritanism per se. Uh, Puritanism has a lot more to say for it than it gets credit for in the modern American imagination. Indeed, the big P Puritans were a lot less puritanical than the the general American imagination remembers them to be. A lot of our stereotypes about Puritanism are rooted in the 19th century and mainline Protestantism, the sort of comstockery that evolved from it. Um, but Puritanism itself has quite a lot to say for it. And per- even this philosophy, uh, which I grant it, is an attempt to remoralize society in ways that conservatives couldn't have imagined the left would ever engage in at the end of the 20th century, which is why the chapters are organized around unimpeachable virtues, piety, austerity, prudence, fear of God, uh, temperance and order. There um, are values at the heart of this philosophy, uh, a willingness, a a willingness to work and experience physical discomfort towards a spiritual goal, self-deprivation and self-sacrifice, austerity and austere surroundings and outward displays of modesty, Um, and obviously uh, treating individuals with respect and a fear of inward insecurities and projecting those onto externalities. I mean, you can go too far with this sort of thing, of course. We're all frail and flawed people, but these these are virtues in the abstract. It is the application of them that the individuals who adhere to this philosophy um, have made themselves into laughing stocks because they're applying them to absurdities that don't lend themselves to this moral framework. The racism and baseball collecting, the the men who are in doing who are sewing now because it's a it's a, a display of their a deference to racial justice, contratemps around knitting and gardening, and uh, you know a war on holidays, a fear of. The uh, the immodesty that and licentious liberty in, in in the words of Cotton Mather that holidays promote like Thanksgiving, like Halloween, all this cultural appropriation and all the the celebration of Americanism, um, these are expressions of a sort of puritanical anxiety, but they are they reflect poorly on those who uh, devote themselves to what are generally pop cultural artifacts of our civilization and don't have much to say about the grander political milieu in which we're in unless you erect this vast pseudo-academic quasi-moral framework around it, which makes it sound authoritative, but you're just festooning this argument with jargon. And we did this again. In the 19th century, there was this very uh, pseudo-academic, semi-scientific attempt to um, rationalize and uh, and make predictable a science around morality. It was a moral moral science was an actual thing in the 19th century, and it is it has its roots in mainline Protestant thought. 
and mainline Protestant progressive thought, which was Republican at the time. Republicans became the party of progressivism again at the time. Progressive philosophy is inextricably linked to this um, moral fervor and this uh, this awakening of sorts, which leaves some of my reviewers have said leaves us to the to conclude that, you know, the United States is long due for another great awakening. And maybe this is it. I wouldn't be surprised. Hmm. God, I hope not. <laughs> I hope this I is, don't know. There's a I lot to be said for the it. There's a lot awake. to be said for it. If you if you long for a grand more civic participation among young people, if you long for a more engaged civic body, I mean that that's what a great great awakening would give you. It's one of those be careful what you wish for situations. Yep. Yep. You know, you mentioned the or, the way you organize the book, and it, it's it's a minor point, but I think it's interesting. Uh, because the way you organize the book, you know, around these ver- these set of virtues, uh, was sort of brilliant in in that just the organization of the book itself underscored your point. I, you know, when I cracked your book open, you know, I was expecting there to be like a chapter on food, a chapter on dating and sex, you know, a a, a chapter on you know each of these sort of topical areas. But what you managed to do is you managed to interweave all these different topical areas among these virtues. But I think it would be interesting for us to talk about some of the specific sort of topical areas. Uh, Again, from listening to the commentary podcast, I I pick up that you're kind of into trees and landscaping, and and I am too. And uh, when you see how everything gets politicized, I'm just like bracing myself for trees and landscaping to be accused of cultural appropriation. I mean... Uh, Too late. That's chapter five. Okay. So so we're no longer allowed (laughs) to plant Japanese maples? Is is that... that Actually, that's innovative, Tom. They haven't gotten there yet. Um, that's clever. No, um, just a brief anecdote in, in chapter five, which is on the fear of God, um, uh, which is essentially the projection of these inward insecurities onto externalities, most of which are banal and a very narrow understanding of our traditions and pastimes and, and indicting them on very flimsy pretexts. Um, and within that chapter is a is a brief digression on gardening, um, particularly focusing in d- indeed on this um, contretemps that was uh, that occurred in the UK in which one individual uh, accused all of British gardening as being the, quote, bedrock of xenophobia and racism because of the misuse of phrases or terms like indigenous and native. Mm. Um, American urban gardening as a phenomenon has been indicted because of its origins in victory gardening in, in urban centers, which celebrates in the in the in the imaginations of the addle minded who indict it. A celebration of the internment of Japanese, of forced German labor, and the importation of Mexican farmers during World War II. So even gardening, this very pleasant little vocation of yours, uh, has to be tainted. You have to spend your time, whatever it is, in any pursuit, you have to spend your time dwelling on the the just abject misery that was experienced by your forebearers. They, the people who do this think it's a mark of their sobriety and their seriousness and their determination to make a better world. It is to a certain extent, but to the uninitiated, like us, it just looks like madness, fanaticism, and it makes you a miserable person to be around. Once again, we're talking to Noah Rothman from Commentary Magazine and author of the book, The Rise of the New Puritans. You know, one of the ways this shows up, and I I did not have this in my notes for the podcast today, but uh, we we at IPI do some work on intellectual property policy uh, not just domestic U.S., but also internationally. And there is there is a very serious organized political movement on this idea of cultural knowledge and indigenous knowledge. 
and that you know if if a if a pharmaceutical company or somebody you know discovered a plant in you know Uganda that had medicinal properties or whatever that that was in a that was a cultural appropriation that that was that was stealing from that country and there are there are literally serious international attempts to force uh repayment for those sorts of appropriations of cultural knowledge and you know in one of the effects of this sort of thing is it actually taken to an extreme degree it's going to result in a lack of innovation and it's going to result in a lack of cultural exchange and knowledge exchange that actually you know will 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 be globally harmful i believe that i i'm I'm by no means I'm not a lawyer and by no means an expert in international commerce and and international uh, you know, legal affairs. But that does seem like really good work if your firm can get it. <laughs> um, uh, I do. I, I do. see. Before, after this book was written, I've seen the phenomenon of uh, those who adhere to this philosophy or at least those who are afraid of those who adhere to this philosophy uh, have now decided that they have to open every sentence with an acknowledgement of the indigenous tribe that occupied the land on which they're standing. Um, It is uh, a noble impulse that is at best a waste of time and is at worst a means by which uh, to to, the deference that they show to these individuals and these groups are a power play, obviously. And what they're, what they're looking for is a grace, the beneficent grace of, uh, being getting a reprieve from the mob that would come after them if they didn't do this sort of thing. And it, it but it also, also seems... makes you sound it makes you sound like an extraterrestrial. <laughs> it makes you sound like somebody who is not from this earth, who speaks a, diff- a different language, a lingua franca that only a particular sort can understand. It is an elite language that opens up a lot of doors to very august institutions. But those institutions are separating themselves from the rest of society in ways they don't seem to understand and making themselves into absolutely incomprehensible alien figures. I've seen these statements that a lot of universities are encouraging or requiring professors, you know, to put in their in their syllabi and things like that about how, you know, we this university is on the property of the so-and-so tribe or whatever. And every time I you know, once once I get over rolling my eyes at the ridiculousness of it, I think, okay, but but who occupied that land before that Indian tribe did? You know, I mean, this is this is almost like an endless regression here. You know, who <laughs> who, who actually right. is no, the, who's the er, you know, owner of the land or the knowledge or the culture or whatever. And if it was about cultural competency and that was that, uh, first of all, it would be much more benign. It would not be a menace or a threat. You would not perceive yourself to be menaced by it. And they, the adherents of this sort of uh, philosophy do make themselves into menaces and want to. They want to appear to be threatening. Um, but it's not entirely based on cultural competency because it's not benign. It is. It has an, the intention of establishing an order that they control. Um, if they can, it, it is. It is a form. I don't want to be excessive about this sort of thing, in part because I don't think this is a philosophy that poses a, a real threat. Part of the reason that I wrote this book in such a flippant and irreverent tone is because I wanted to de- defang this movement, neutralize the threat that it's perceived to have by the right. Um, but uh, the degree to which these uh, these sort of uh, secret handshakes that are engaged in by these, these people only for each other is, again, a sort of a secret society. It, and it's you can understand its appeal if it 
if it is what they say it is, which is this decoder ring to understand the world around you. It peels back the curtain that has been drawn before your eyes. And it, it, it shows you the secret hidden workings of the world, which are actually quite horrid. The story of, of, uh, of the, the planet we've inherited is uh, a, an endless cycle of oppression and victimization. And you're in, um, in a, a part of it because you've inherited it. It's your, it's your legacy. And then once you see that world, you're part of a very exclusive club. Exclusivity is a is a warm and cozy feeling, and that's what this philosophy offers. It's just a, a cult-like misapprehension of the world or a very narrow understanding of the world in ways that are more uh that obscure more than they illuminate and enlighten. It's also, though, I think a two-edged sword. It's not just to buy you credibility within the in crowd. I think it's also to ferret out who the unbelievers are. Right. I mean, you, right. you you make a requirement, you know, that a professor make a particular statement and then you, you're going to quickly find out the two or three that are going to refuse to do it. And That's so right. now you have someone you can focus your you can crusade against. Now you have someone you can focus your ire and your activism against. And and, you know, again, burn burn the heretic, you know, burn the apostate as an example to all others. <laughs> That's I, I completely agree. So let's talk about a couple topical areas. Um, let's talk about food first, because this this is one of the more mind blowing ones. Um, and, and in fact, I think commentary published an excerpt from your book in, in this area. So, you know, one of the one of the great funds of frankly being a living human being in a modern society is the different kinds of cuisine we're able to enjoy. You know, I mean, our podcast here is recorded in Texas. You know, there's wonderful Tex-Mex everywhere here. Um, and, you know, there's fusion restaurants. There's every imaginable kind of fusion restaurant. They're, in some cases, fusing things that probably didn't need to be fused. But mm-hmm. still, uh, that's just part of the joy of living is being able to do that. But but they want to wreck that, don't they? They, they want to politicize food. Well, they certainly don't want it to be as enjoyable as you might find it. Um, take, for example meat eating um we know that for for example just take you know veganism out of it but there's been a long time crusade against the uh the mistreatment of animals uh in in the use or the the preparation of of meat and red meat is deemed to be uh dangerous to the planet earth Uh, it's uh it's environmentally unsound as a practice and it's pretty bad for your health. I mean, these these are the three arguments against this sort of thing. All of them are very dubious when it comes to the science. And if you begin to strip away some of that scientific, uh, quasi-scientific, in fact, because you have now peer-reviewed studies that call into question uh, the idea that this is uh, bad for your health and that this is dangerous for the environment. You peel that away and you begin to see that people talk about this in very moral terms, starkly moral terms, that this is an ethical choice for you. Uh, particularly with the advent of cellular meat, where you have meat that's going to be grown in a uh, in a petri dish, you're going to be faced with a very stark moral choice. These advocates say, um, and do you live an amoral life by continuing to enjoy this thing that you enjoy just because you enjoy it? Likewise, um, you've talked about cultural appropriation, which is very difficult to define, but it looks a lot more like eth- ethnic particularism when it becomes an effort to police the people who can both produce and enjoy certain ethnic foods or God save you uh, adulterate those foods by combining various cultures into some sort of uh, conglomerated amalgam. Um, This sounds very much like how, how uh, segregationists talked about race mixing uh, is how they talk about uh, fusionist cuisine and all in all it's designed to, to have you focus 
not on your sensory enjoyment of this because your sensory enjoyment isn't governed by the intellect. Uh, which the Epicurean meal that you eat, you you breathe a heavy sigh, your body betrays you. This is not something that anyone can control in you. And that's dangerous for people who want to do nothing more than control you. And we see the strains of this in puritanical thought. I liken it to some of the writings of a very prolific uh, member of the Westminster Assembly and a prominent Protestant preacher, congregationalist preacher in the late uh, 17th century, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs whose uh, book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, crystallizes a particular line of puritanical thought, which uh, was essentially uh, the degree to which you had to loathe yourself. Uh, he talked about the degree to the extent to which the, the human species was so vile that you cannot receive any good, that you are an empty vessel and a corrupt and unclean vessel. And um, I think it was Increase Mather. No, it was Cotton Mather who said, uh, by loathing himself continually, by being very sensible of his loathsome, loathsome circumstances, a Christian does what is very pleasing to God. You are a piece of trash, and you need to be aware of the extent to which you are garbage. You do not deserve these earthly pleasures. And once you internalize the extent to which you do not deserve what you've been get granted, you learn gratitude for what you've been granted. Again, there's value. To a lot of these theories that have been tested by human experience over the course of many, many generations. It's funny that the progressive left is just discovering this as though they learned it themselves. Well, it's funny. But because there's also excess to it. And the excess being that you're not allowed to have any enjoyment unless if you if you want to be perceived to be a serious person. It's funny because what you're describing is like the the Christian theological doctrine of total depravity. Uh, and, you know. Again, from the theological standpoint, that's a matter of, you know, there's all sorts of theological arguments behind the idea that the, the human race is totally depraved. I suppose in the woke crowd, the depravity comes, again, from the guilt over, you know, colonial colonialism and racism and sexism and all of those things, and it, it renders, you know, it renders you totally depraved. It renders you, yeah. uh, you know— you're Think of how guilty. often you've seen these people engaged in self-flagellation right. in the pursuit of penance from their in-group. Uh, it is it is a religious practice in that degree, yeah. in that sense. You know, when you were talking about red meat, it, uh, I had a couple thoughts on that that, that occurred I think are interesting. Uh, I mentioned earlier this idea of ever-escalating legalism where the rules have to get stricter and stricter and stricter and applied ever more uh, narrowly. And, you know, it used to be that the thing with eating red meat was, okay, you know, free range you know <laughs> the, the, the animal's not is not kept in a pen and then it was okay that's not enough uh it has to also be raised without any antibiotics or without any drugs now that's not enough it has to be um it has to be slaughtered in a particular way and so you you had these in order to maintain your clear conscience in eating red meat there was this ever escalating set of rules till we finally find ourselves now to the point where no as it turns out there's <laughs> there's no way you could consume red meat guilt free you have to feel guilty about it uh until it you is it is a sin yeah. it is a sin yeah. in the terms as it's defined by those who who regard it as a as an act of malice, it's an affront to the Eden in which we were conceived. It's a callous pleasure. Its health effects make you a burden on your families and your neighbors. It's a wanton display of cruelty to animals. This is the language of morality. You started to touch on something that I think we ought to talk about, and it's also a nice segue to another topic I want to cover. But eating is also sensual. Uh, it, it's an enjoyable 
thing to do. As you say, it's not a, it's not intellectual. It's not rational. It, it shouldn't be political. It's it's a sensual sensuality, a, a way of simply enjoying pleasure. And again, if you go back to like the left of the of the fifties and sixties, they they were the sensualists. I mean, they right. they, oh, they were the ones yeah. who you know irresponsible. If it, if it feels good, do it. Right, irresponsible sex, irresponsible use of drugs. Uh, man, don't make me feel guilty in the morning. Uh, th- we're they, skipping over to chapter six. Okay, okay, that's good, the chapter good. on sex and booze. Yeah, because, but because there's, they were they uh, were the left were the were the proponents of sensuality, and it was the uptight conservatives who were who were the so so called Victorians. But now again, this is something that's that's flipped 180 degrees. That's right, and that's there's one that's one of the reasons why the chapter on food is also the chapter on stand up comedy. The two things you wouldn't think would really go together, but they do insofar as that sigh that you you breathe when you've eaten this sinfully delicate, delicious meal is the same uh, effect your body does when you let out that that gut laugh at a ribald joke that you probably shouldn't have laughed at. Right. That your gu- body that betrays laugh you. And you're looking around <laughs> to see if other people are laughing. Your body betrays you. Yeah. It has it has given up your sinful um self-indulgent uh desires and that's very dangerous to people who want to control them when it comes to sex and booze which is the chapter on temperance um there is again a rediscovery of some very conservative truths about theories of social organization that being when single men and women are present in a room that is also bathed in alcohol socially destabilizing things can happen the social contract can be torn up in that moment and con- comedy and social harmony can be disrupted by those events. The rediscovery of this by progressives uh, around the, the time of the Me Too movement in 2019, where you had progressive groups blaming alcohol for this for this set of circumstances to large degree and, and limiting the access to which. Uh, they could have alcohol in these social settings and also in re- rediscovering strictures on sexual relations or rediscovering at least the political philosophy behind sexual relations. There's this idea in the, that's long gone in the hippie generation that, um, you know, all, all things that feel good are great and you should do it. And that was the height. That was the all of it. There was nothing more to it. Now, if you if you peruse the literature on the the ever proliferating sexual orientations, they all have a political program associated with them. And that's what you're supposed to emphasize. Couple that with an interesting um, effort on the part of the progressive left to uh, legalize and codify what um, uh, sexual consent means, not just in the legal statutes, consent being, you know, any non-consensual sexual act is a crime that should be prosecuted. That's not what they're doing here. What they're trying to do is expand the definition of what constitutes sex in ways that are unconstitutional because they are outside statute. They can't be enforced in law and they violate constitutional rights. California tried this. Many um, other universities have tried this. But the bottom line is we're creating a very puritanical, unnavigable labyrinth in which Sex, and this is very true to the Puritan experience, because there was no stricture on sex within marriage, quite unlike in Victorian times. Sex for pleasure was not had no social uh, restrictions around it. Um, But we have this weird labyrinth in which in the one in the one hand, it's the political culture and the culture what you're in is very accommodating and very accepting of just about every sexual appetite. But wooing somebody assertively and boldly is a very fraught prospect. Okay, let's let's the point go. where there's legal yeah. legal problems there. Let's, and the result is people are having less sex. They report having less 
casual intercourse because the 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 landscape is a minefield. Yeah, this is exactly where I wanted to go because th- this is the part of this that troubles me the most. Again, we're speaking with Noah Rothman about his recent book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. I cannot imagine being a young man trying to date in the current environment. I just, I simply cannot imagine it. And I think that there's a direct one-to-one relationship between this environment and this phenomenon of incels, you know, and, and, and men in particular who are just checking out and saying it's, it's more trouble than it's worth to try to meet women, date women. Uh, you know, there's any number of couples together today in various kinds of relationships that the way they met was the 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 pursuer was very persistent in pursuing the pursuee or perhaps uh perhaps the man you know had to swallow down a glass of liquid courage before crossing the room to introduce himself to a woman i mean all of these things now are are things that can get you in serious trouble uh just just you know, she's turned you down for a date twice, you ask a third time. I mean, I personally know couples that that's their story, and they were married for 30 years. But now if you do that now, that borders on criminal activity. So this this whole area of persuasion in, in dating and in intimacy and in romance, um, seduction I know is probably not the right word to use, but I mean, historically, this is the way men and women have related to each other. Uh, a, a man sees a woman, he pursues her. He attempts to seduce her. He's persistent, uh, or the other way around, of course. Um, and that is the story of human sexual relationships. And it's like all of that now is just, as you say, a minefield that is fraught with danger to the male, I think, in particular, in just this idea of pursuing women and trying to establish relationships. If you talk to progressives, and I do occasionally talk to progressives about this book and try to convince them of the premise of it, you encounter this increasing rhetorical phenomenon that I often encounter when talking to progressives, which amounts to it's not happening. And when it happens, it's good. Um, so this whole, you know, erection, the, the idea that there are all these strictures on sexual relations and it's frustrating to men and it's re- resulting in reduced sexual activity and less courtship and less enjoyment of life. That's not happening. And also it is happening. And it's very good that it's happening because mm. there's an epidemic of uh, sexual violence in this country. Um, the effort to establish in law the idea of affirmative consent, um, which was, uh, as California defined it in a subsequently unconstitutional piece of legislation, um, was essentially that you had to reconfirm over the course of an engagement, a sexual engagement on a semi-regular basis, like within every 10 minutes that, you know, this is OK, this is good. You're still into this. Right. Yes. And that's not just to establish uh, the what was actually patently illegal in these cases, which is impairment. Um, or uh, being uh, detained, physically detained, those are assault. Those are those are um, aspects of assault. We're not talking about assault here. What we're talking about is what, how Ezra Klein d- described it in Vox. Ezra Klein described California statute as the uh, nebulous because what it was trying to do was the, the behaviors it was trying to prescribe were hard to define. But he said this was good. It was good because, quote, young men will, quote, feel a cold spike of fear when they begin a sexual encounter and the law will quote settle like a cold winter over college campuses throwing everyday sexual practice into doubt and creating a haze and fear and confusion over what counts as consent um that's maybe great if you're a moral reformer california's courts didn't feel especially good about it 
And we subsequently learned, you know, because affirmative consent has been, I guess, de-emphasized, if not abandoned, because it was such a debacle, but no less a venue than Teen Vogue, which is a really progressive place, like the bleeding edge of progressive thought, rediscovered, again, they're in the constant process of rediscovery, the human experience. Uh, Sexual relations are kind of complicated. Some people do practice affirmative consent, but for the most part, gender roles are men push boundaries and women behave in a coquettish and coy fashion. This is just how it's always been. And the effort to intellectualize that away is a very frustrating process for people who want to re-engineer society in this way. Um, They encountered the limits of their uh, power in the form of the immovable obstacle of human nature. The rediscovery of human nature is something conservatives with a conservative political ideology are never going to have to experience. That is one of the great advantages of conservative political philosophy, which is that the human the human being is an immutable creature with certain traits that are apparent over the course of its history. Uh, the behaviors of young men and young women engaged in courtship being one of them. And the idea that you can re-engineer that in the, in the model of this new social social good is uh, the height of hubris. They're only now just rediscovering it. But along the way, a lot of people are going to have a lot less sex. They're self-reporting a lot less sex because they're afraid. And they and it's the design is to make them afraid. And you're also guilty until proven innocent. I mean, the whole idea of affirmative consent is like you're you're assumed to be a rapist or you're you're assumed to be behaving badly unless you get a you know a, a note from the teacher every 10 or 15 minutes that says everything is okay and it reminds me a little bit of anti-racism it's not enough for you to not affirmatively act racist you have to affirmatively act anti-racist it's just it's like assuming you're a racist unless you're an anti-racist and just it just it just goes contrary to just some of the core ways that we set up civilization this idea that the, the assumption that you're guilty until proven innocent you're a criminal unless you are given some sort of a note from teacher. And you, and when it comes to the anti-racism stuff, you can see that uh, the, the blaring echoes of puritanical thought in the form of this idea of, of doing the work, which is about as, as Protestant a philosophy as you could possibly get. The work itself is the reward. There is no goal. There is no objective that you reach. The work is actively disempowering in that way, because it is not the sort of thing that it, uh, encourages your input. First of all, your input is neither uh, solicited nor desired. It is the sort of thing that you are to submit to. You are to submit to doctrinal thought and evince great discomfort in the process of internalizing it. Um, this is a, about as this is a barn raising, the equivalent of a barn raising in our modern uh, political ethos is that you have to suffer and endure pain and hardship. And the sweat on your brow is the evidence that you will leave behind of the great works that you have done in the advancement of the project of our time, which is in their minds, the uh, the establishment of a new Zion on earth in the form of the progressive utopia. And, you know, I think we've we've sort of touched around this a couple of times in this conversation, but but let's sort of be explicit about it. The There's a phrase in your book description that says, in the process, they are sucking the joy out of life. And I think your point is they intend to suck the joy out of life because you should be miserable. You, you, you don't deserve anything other than to feel miserable. That's an interesting way to put it, that you don't deserve it. Um, I think that's true. I think that crystallizes 
the thought that you are unworthy, uh, that all of us are indeed unworthy to a certain degree. Um, it is a trite pleasure, fun, uh, mm-hmm. something as as frivolous as enjoyment for enjoyment's sake uh, advances nothing so grand as the advancement of the human condition, the uh, amelioration or alleviation of the ills that are suffered around the world on a daily basis, semi, you know, hourly basis. I think that's a, that's an interesting way to put it. I don't know if I put it exactly that way, but I like it. You know, the I think the common layperson's way of describing all of this would be to say something like, everything has been politicized, that just everything that everything has to be political. And, you know, your football fan turns on the game Sunday and there's political messages on the back of the players' helmets and there's yeah. political messages painted on the floor of the basketball court and, and things like Well, not like to interrupt that. you, but that was the origins of this book. Ah, I was absolutely okay. miserable in about two years from now, um, or, or two years ago now, around the late fall, early, uh, early winter of 2020, mid-pandemic. Cities on fire, every institution in America dedicating itself to reconceptualizing the American founding as something evil. Uh, it was miserable time to be to be checking out the headlines. And so I'm talking with my wife. And I'm talking about how miserable I am. And she's like, well, what would you want to do? Oh, well, if I had my druthers, I talk to people in, in businesses and industries that I like stand up comics, screenwriters, uh, working chefs, sports broadcasters, people in the world of fashion, even um, just anything but politics. But now. Because everything is political. Everybody's engaged in politics. Everybody wakes up every day engaged in politics, not engaged in the stuff that they wanted to do for a living to make me happy. And that turned out to be the book. We have a we have a friend of IPI here in Dallas, a former retired columnist with the Dallas Morning News named uh, Bill Murkison. And uh, Bill wrote a book several years ago that was simply called There's More to Life Than Politics. And I am just constantly reminded of, of it's, it's just a very simple idea. And I do think that's also part of a conservative mindset is that is that politics is necessary in order to make possible all of the real all of the real purposes in life, uh, family and joy and faith and community and hobbies and recreation that that we have to dip our toe into politics every once in a while in order to preserve those institutions. But it's everything other than politics is why we live. We don't live for politics. And this is why a lot of people see this wokeism and this new puritanical movement as related to Marxism, because in Marxist philosophy, uh, everything has to be politicized. Uh, everyone is either an oppressor or the oppressed. Uh, and the oppressed uh, sort of gain elite credibility by condemning the oppressors. And there seems to be an awful lot of that sort of Marxist worldview going on here. And it's like, it's like we don't really see economic Marxism anymore, but we see cultural and, and sort of almost like a, a moral and ethical Marxism going on. Do you agree with that? So, yes, I, I do. I think I see a symmetry um, between um, Marxist societies as they constituted themselves and this philosophy in a specific way, because they are both totalitarian. Now, Puritanical society was not authoritarian. Puritanical society was very democratic, radically democratic, but it was totalitarian by definition insofar as there was a total prescription for life, that everything fell within it. Nothing existed outside of it. Um, the problem, as I see what these uh, what the progressive Puritans are engaged in, is not politics. They think it's politics. What they're engaged in is obsessing over things that have political themes 
They are not about legislative affairs. The problems that they're addressing do not lend themselves to legislative remedy. They have nothing to do with electoral politics or uh, your state house or even the federal legislature. They are pop cultural, uh, ephemera, here today, gone tomorrow. And part of the problem that this, as a psychological outlook, this does to you is it inculcates in you this fatalism because one of two things happens to you when you realize that you have you're surrounded by all these problems. They're they're uh, they're all consuming. But the political system, as it's designed, cannot address your absolute moral imperatives. So one of two things happens to you when you just you bow out, you get depressed, you say, oh, this the system is is a mess and it's not working for me. It's not working for this country. I'm out. I'm just going to do something that doesn't make me crazy. Or you go crazy. You resolve to attack the foundations of this wholly immoral status quo that is so unresponsive to your absolute moral imperatives. Those are two very psychologically damaging outlooks. And it all stemmed from a misapprehension about what politics in this country is. It is not comic books. It is not food trucks. It is not even how families organize themselves. It is legislative affairs, which are grueling incrementalist episodes that involve a lot of very uncomfortable and unsatisfying compromises. That's what politics in this country is. And if you're engaged in this sort of rabble-rousing absolutism where you think you can re-engineer society from the ground up, you're going to be very disappointed. And you're going to project that disappointment onto everybody around you. And everybody around you is going to be miserable and not want to be around you. That's the theme of this book. It's one of the things I hope readers of it recognize. And if they're not members of this philosophy, if they have somebody in the, uh, somebody who is amenable to this philosophy in their lives, it helps them understand where they're coming from and maybe have an ounce of sympathy for them because it is sort of an affliction. It's not something that they're 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 trying to make you miserable. They're miserable themselves and they need help. Well, no, it's a great read. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, everyone who's listening here should have a copy of it. Uh, with the holidays coming up, it would make a great gift, maybe particularly to high school and college age family members who we can at least show them that what they are picking up by osmosis in school is not necessarily the best the best philosophy for life. Uh, I really appreciate the book. It's a great read. I, I hope it's received well. It sounds like you're not particularly optimistic that this is going to be a shorter term rather than a longer term phenomenon, but uh, your 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 book is at least a solid pushback against this craziness that I think I think most Americans inherently see this as crazy and nonsensical, but they may not have really thought through why that is, where it's coming from, and where it's going. So th- thanks so much for spending this time with us. Thanks for writing the book. Everybody, keep listening to the Commentary Magazine podcast. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much. Noah Rothman, author of the book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Well, we would invite you to check out our our website at ipi.org and to sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new content, new podcast episodes, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.